Well, good morning, St. George's. Great to be with you this morning. Let us just bow our heads, heads in prayer as we start. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning to open your word. I pray, Lord, now that you'd lead us by your spirit. You give us understanding, Lord, as we look to the text before us this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts here present would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We commit this time to you now. Lead us this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, please get a Bible out to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking through verse 3 to 12. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 12. And as you do so, I just wanted to give you some context about 1 Peter. Because today we're going to be talking about what it looks like to live in the joy of the resurrection. My friends, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, was such a blessed celebration of the resurrection here at St. George's. And my prayer is that we may live in this resurrection joy daily. Because Jesus is alive, my friends. Death has been defeated and our King lives. So in 1 Peter here, we have... Just some brief context before we dive into verse 3. First Peter is written by the Apostle Peter to believers to elect exiles of the dispersion, if you look at verse 1 and 2. This epistle was addressed to the saints of the dispersion in Asia Minor, but we know that all of Scripture is addressed beyond its immediate location and is extended to the church in every place and every time. So it is instructive for us Today, we see in verse 1 and 2, elect exiles. So those who are chosen by God and exiles being one who is absent from their own home country. There's a temporary nature of a sojourner's stay in a specific place. So these exiles, these converts, were living in exile in the various regions that are named in verse 1 and 2. And in the deepest sense, my friends, we as Christians live in this world, but our real home is heaven. In fact, we are citizens of heaven, and thus our hope is anchored there. Peter encourages his readers within this letter to endure suffering and persecution in, in their worldly walk, but by, being, by staying grounded in their living hope. They are to remain faithful even in times of trial and distress, knowing that they will certainly enjoy the salvation that the Lord has promised. So we see in verse 1 to 2, we can make reference to Christians who are the continuation of the true Israel, God's people, living in exile in this fallen world, away from their homeland, which is heaven. So in verse 1 and 2, we can also see that salvation is accomplished by God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see the Trinity on display there in verse 1 and 2. And all of this is possible through Christ's atoning work on the cross, right? Where all of the believer's sins were washed away. Believers sprinkled with the blood of Christ. A key word in this epistle is hope. In the scriptures, hope is not uncertainty or some kind of wishful thinking. Well, no, biblical hope is a confident expectation of future blessing based on the sure 
promises of God. It is certain. It is a living hope because it's rooted in the living one, the everlasting one, Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 3 now. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we see at the start of verse 3 that Peter starts automatically with praising God in the form of a sort of doxology. Everything starts here with praising the Lord. And for us, at the heart of true worship and also at the heart of true theology is the praise of God, right? He says this in verse 3, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see God named as the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus here then as God's Son by nature, right? Jesus as God's Son by nature. We also see Christ described here as Lord, right? Jesus described as Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. In the Hebrew and in the Old Testament, the term that was reserved only for God was Lord. And the term here in the Greek is Kyrios. The term in the Hebrew would be Adonai. This would be a term, again, that was only reserved for God. And so we see what Peter is saying here. Blessed be God the Father and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see Jesus' kingship on display here, and Peter makes this pointed and clear. Moving on in verse 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Okay, so let's pause here for a second. To be born again, to be regenerated, right? To enter into rebirth, to be born again, is God's work. It's according to his great mercy that he has caused us, the elect, to be born again. So we had no say, for example, in being born naturally. Likewise, we do not have any say in being born again supernaturally. We do not cause ourselves to be born again supernaturally. It is God that causes this. And he says, Peter says this, he has caused us to be born again. This is God's work. So let's get this straight. If, if God is the cause, then the effect is regenerate hearts and people who are saved, new hearts given. The human being whom God has chosen to be born again will come to faith and will see heaven at the end of their days, as we'll continue to see as we move through these verses. So just remember this. With God being the cause, the effect is certain, right? He speaks, and so it is. This regeneration leading to the gift of faith, faith itself as the result of God's electing grace. So we praise the Lord then at verse 3. We praise the Lord because he is the cause of our redemption, and it's according to his great mercy, right? Not the work of man. Man cannot save himself. Man needs a Savior God who is mighty to save. And this is what we have in our Lord, that we'd be washed in the blood of Christ. The debt that we owed paid for through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross on Good Friday. Jesus said, it is finished. 
How do we know that the debt has been paid for in full? Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This is the proof and pledge of our own future resurrection. He is alive. So according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Jesus is alive, my friends. And so we have this eternal hope then because we're, we're having this hope rooted in the living Savior, Jesus Christ, who conquered death and Satan, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all of this being the work of God. I just want to pause here for a second as we talk about being born again, being saved, being regenerated, and given the gift of faith. Let us remember always, and Peter explains this to us if you look at verse 2 quickly, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. Remember that if we're truly born again, right, if we're truly saved then in Jesus Christ, then we will truly be growing in sanctification. No, it won't be a perfect walk, but there will be an upward trend as we head to glorification, as God brings us there. It's by his power. So if we're truly born again, if we're truly saved, then we will bear fruit in obedience because we're connected to Christ, who is the true vine. We will bear fruit. And this is how we can tell if our profession of faith is true or not, if it bears fruit in obedience to our Lord as the Holy Spirit sanctifies us and does his work in us. So we see that believers have received new life because of their union and identification with the resurrected Christ at the end of verse 3. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? Through the gift of faith, we are united to the resurrected Christ. And thus we have an unshakable living hope. This is full assurance. My friends, this world offers us dead, lifeless hope. Worldly things and worldly possessions fall away. They're uncertain and they ultimately lead to destruction. But Christ offers us living hope. In fact, he offers us himself raised from the dead. Hope is rooted in the resurrection. And this Christian life would be a life that is sustained by the power of Christ. Now and into eternity. Let's look at verse 4 and 5. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last Time. Right? So, if this is the reality of our salvation in Christ, if it's according to God's great mercy that He causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, giving us the gift of faith, the same God that made all things, we being absolutely powerless to affect our own rebirth, but God being the one who has the power to, if this is the reality of our salvation, now we have an inheritance verse 4, that is imperishable. It cannot be destroyed or lost. It's undefiled, right? It's pure, and it's unfading. My friends, the inheritance of the saints will never fade away, right? This rich inheritance reserved for us in heaven 
everlasting life and the fullness of life in God's kingdom. So this is the reality of our salvation, this inheritance, this reality of heaven at the end of our days. It's imperishable. It'll never be destroyed. It is sure. My friends, if we're saved in Jesus Christ, we will live forever. We will live forever because of the one who is eternal. And if we're united to him by faith, the salvation of God's elect is sure. As sure as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as sure as the creation of the cosmos, and as sure as the rising of the sun each day, it is certain. Look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. So do we see that progression there, right? It's God, through his great mercy, he causes us to be born again, right? To a living hope, through the resurrection, to an inheritance that will never be taken away from us. And it's by the power of Almighty God, the same power behind the universe itself, who is keeping us and guarding us through faith for salvation. A salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this sense, the word salvation here is referring to the complete and final future deliverance from sin and the full enjoyment of eternal glory, right? And we see these realities in Scripture. Before the foundation of the world, God predestined us to be saved and that we're being saved and that we hope to be saved. But we see that it's sure. But we see those three elements there. So in this sense, salvation ready to be revealed in the last time is the word referring to the final deliverance and when we get to heaven, glorification. But we see that it's by God's power that we're being guarded through faith. It's the eternal God who will absolutely 100% of the time bring his sheep home. If you've been justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven because of God. It's nothing in yourself. You can never be good enough. It's by God's power that you're being guarded through the gift of faith in the first place. I mean, think of it. Think of it. Jesus says, no one will snatch his sheep out of his hands. He's certain about that. All of the elect make it to heaven, period. So if we're truly justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, by God's power we're being guarded through faith, and we will make it to glorification. Jesus died the death that we deserved and secured salvation for all who put their faith in him. His work is finished. Salvation is secured for a believer. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. And through our earthly walks, we are being guarded, right? Protected by the Almighty God. R.D. was saying this this week when we were speaking about this passage. He said, God keeps the inheritance for you, and he keeps you for the inheritance. It's certain, right? What a reason to rejoice then, to live in the joy of the resurrection. So the hope that was talked about at verse 3 is now further described as inheritance at verse 4, right? And in the Old Testament, typically, this would refer to the promised land and Israel's place in it. The inheritance promised to Abraham and his seed, for example, who ultimately is Christ. But the Old Testament inheritance points ahead to an even greater inheritance, right? 
reserved in heaven, kept in heaven for you, the heavenly promised land, and that God will protect his elect through his power by sustaining their faith to the end. If we're saved now, we will reach glorification. This is certain. God not only gives his people grace, but preserves them unto glory. And at the end of verse 5, as we said, salvation here is referring to the complete and final deliverance from sin. So we see that past, present, and future reality in that word. And then in the last time refers to the time of Christ's return and the final manifestation of his power and glory. Let's move on to verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this, you rejoice, at verse 6. In this, in this work of God in our salvation, right? In this promised inheritance that will never fade away, that shall be ours in glory in heaven. In this, we rejoice, right? We live a life that manifests this true, deep-seated, eternal joy. Though now for a little while, there will be temporary trials, but these trials have a purpose, All of the suffering or persecution that we go through has a purpose. God is with us in these trials. At verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, right? So through the trials, the genuineness of our faith is being proved. God is involved in these trials, right? We see God's providence on display. Our trials are part of his providential plan, And in this, our salvation, we rejoice. Jesus Christ has been raised to everlasting life. And so we have this joy, this resurrection joy. My friends, this joy, this true joy is is in itself imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and rooted at its core in heaven. That we would live our daily lives with this eternal lens. Because Jesus is alive In the salvation we rejoice, even through trials. But remember verse 5. Even as we go through trials, even as our faith seemingly is tested, it is by God's power that the true believer is being guarded through faith. So although there will be trials in our earthly walks, the true believer will be able to weather the storm because of their Savior God. In fact, God will refine the believer through trials. And at verse 7, we see that true saving faith will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a faith that's never shaken, right? A faith that stays grounded in eternal joy, eternal life, heaven, everlasting life, reigning with Jesus Christ. And we see in verse 7, this faith is more precious than gold. This faith is so valuable that God wants to refine it, right? So in verses 6 to 7 here, as Peter explains this, we may pause here and note that God never tempts anyone to sin, but he does allow and send trials when necessary and in the right measure for strengthening faith, right? He is with us in our trials. 
even in earthly trials that are, may even be brought upon us by evil. The hand of God is in these trials in that God will use these trials for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So we see that there. And at the end of verse 7, we see at the revelation of Jesus Christ, referring to the second coming. So in verse 6 and 7, in verses 6 and 7, Peter shows us true joy is present through these trials, even for a little while as we experience them in the whole of our earthly lives, the suffering that we experience in this present time is nothing compared to the glory of the inheritance and future salvation and glorification. The Lord purifies our faith and shows it to be genuine by his power, even using trial. And he'll give praise and honor and glory to our true faith that he's given to us as a gift. Let's look at verse 8 and 9 now. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So at verse 8, think of who's writing this, right? The apostle Peter. Peter had seen the glory of the Lord in the transfiguration and also in the risen Christ. And he had a joy that was inexpressible. He can't even begin to try to describe what this joy is. Words don't do it justice. It's inexpressible joy. And he calls us to live in this joy. So though we ourselves did not see the empty tomb, we love Jesus Christ. Though we have not yet seen the risen Lord with our eyes, we adore Jesus Christ and we believe in him. And thus we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. This is no worldly joy. This is eternal, glorious joy, right? Contentment in all circumstances in our lives. Why? Because all is well with our souls. All is well. We have peace with God. We've been justified by faith, our salvation secure. Well, then happy are we. This inexpressible joy, my friends, is not fleeting happiness or fleeting worldly joy that is controlled by environmental factors in our lives. No, this joy is rooted at its core in the eternal reality of our salvation. This joy is based in our living hope. And this is a joy that can never be taken away from us. It is grounded in the promises of God that are unshakable. We actually see this inexpressible joy on display in the life of our Lord Jesus. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. My friends, we will also go through trials and suffering. We too have a cross to bear. But even through the suffering of the cross... Jesus' joy was never taken away from him because he knew what was to come. The joy of Christ was inexpressible and rooted in the glory of heaven. This inexpressible joy stemming from a true and lively faith. Saving faith and its outcome, the salvation of our souls, as we see at the end of verse 9. So this joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have to ask ourselves as Christians, are we spending the majority of our days moping around 
or complaining constantly? Because one, that would be bad advertisement for the kingdom. But two, there needs to really be a sense in which we're not living under our circumstances, but that we're living above our circumstances because we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We must rejoice in the Lord always. This deep abiding confidence and contentment in the Lord Jesus himself. Joy is a distinguishing mark of Christianity because believers are those who truly have joy in the deepest sense. And again, this true joy is not something that the world can give us. Therefore, the world cannot take it away from us. So think about this letter. Think about the apostle who wrote it, Peter. Peter is calling us to be joyful. Similar to how Paul has called us to be joyful in many different letters. Both of these men went through intense circumstances that we cannot even begin to understand, leading to their death. The apostles then calling us to joyful living as they went to die for their faith after much persecution. Their joy never left them, just like Christ. And the outcome of their joyful faith they met as they went to be with the Lord. They knew the the joy of Jesus Christ. And if the early church then could live a life rooted in this resurrection joy amidst all of the trials of our earthly walk and their earthly walk, well, surely, with our circumstances here, we should be living daily from a place of joy. Joy that's inexpressible. Joy found in knowing Jesus Christ and loving Jesus Christ and obeying Jesus Christ. This inexpressible joy. In Psalm 16, verse 11, David writes, In your presence there is fullness of joy. Joy that is full. Would we like to have this fullness of joy? Well, it's found in the presence of the Lord. It's found in that eternal perspective. And when we obtain the final outcome of our faith, at verse 9, and we enter heaven, kept by God's power, The joy of heaven cannot even begin to be explained. It's inexpressible. It's full of glory. But even now in this life, we live our whole lives quorum Deo, which means in the presence of God or before the face of God. There's true joy now as we walk with the Lord daily. At verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Believers are to live by faith and not by sight. We are to love him whom we've never seen with our eyes. To love him in whom our joy is found. And at verse 9, that we see the outcome of our true faith. Again, as believers, we already enjoy many elements of this end time salvation. New resurrection life. Peace, being born again. The fellowship with God. But the full possession of all these things. The outcome, it awaits us at the return of Christ. When God's completed work in the believer comes to its fullness. So this joy that is so profound, it's beyond mere words. Inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of our faith, salvation. Everlasting life with Christ. Now let's look to verse 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So we see here in verses 10 and 11 that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired about the ultimate reveal of the Messiah, right? They prophesied about the coming Christ, and they were led by the Spirit of Christ. The prophets predicted the suffering of Christ that he would undergo in his earthly life and on Good Friday, leading to the cross, and the glory that was to result from Christ's suffering. Think of Isaiah 53, as Isaiah prophesied about Christ as the suffering servant. So the prophets knew that the Messiah was to come, but they did not know exactly when or how he would come, or maybe specifically who he would be. In verse 11, we see the Holy Spirit called the Spirit of Christ. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. Because he is sent by Christ. The Holy Spirit is sent by Christ. And because after the resurrection, Christ and the Spirit act in unity in applying redemption to the believer. So in verse 10 and 11, we see that the Old Testament prophets did not have that full picture. Right? They didn't see clearly when their prophecies would be realized. But we now have the full picture. Because it's been announced to us. Important to pause on this for a second. Important to note is that the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ was not an afterthought or a reaction to unforeseen developments. No, rather it was purposed and prophesied about in the Old Testament scriptures. In verse 10, we see the word grace. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. And this grace immediately referring to all that God has done In Jesus Christ, through the gospel, salvation made possible by the sufferings of Christ and made possible by the cross. These sufferings then followed by glories, subsequent glories at the end of verse 11, namely the resurrection and ascension and exaltation of Christ to the right hand of the Father. And now to verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So we see that the Old Testament prophets confirm the legitimacy of Jesus Christ. We see all things come to its fulfillment in Jesus, confirming who he is. That the good news, then, has been announced to us through the ministry of the apostles, the early church, ultimately by the Holy Spirit. That we would not only hear the gospel outwardly by the mouths of men, but that we'd be effectually called inwardly. That there'd actually be a heart change, a heart transplant, a new heart given, effectually called by the Holy Spirit inwardly regenerated, born again, justified, being sanctified, and leading to glorification in heaven by God's power alone. It's by the power of Almighty God that all of these things take place. What a glorious salvation. In verse 12, things that have now been announced, we see. The sufferings and glories of Christ at the core of the gospel message. These events being predicted by prophets and ultimately fulfilled and told to the church 
through the apostolic message. We also see in verse 12, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, that the origin of the gospel message is God. The same Spirit then, who inspired the prophets, directed the apostles and early gospel messengers. And at the end of verse 12, things into which angels long to look. Celestial beings are intensely interested in redemption, but their knowledge and experience of it may be limited. God's plan is now made known to them through the church. We see this in Ephesians 3, verse 10, that God's plan is made known to them through the church. My friends, our salvation in Jesus Christ is so marvelous, it's so majestic, that even the angels of heaven long to look into and fully understand it. The angels delight to watch the ministry of Christ unfold in history. It's his story. It's by God's power that salvation is granted. Christians have received outstanding blessings. Because my friends, as we said on Easter Sunday, we say again every day, Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive. And this is a reason for joyful living every single day. What else do you need? What else do you need? If we're saved in Jesus Christ, you'll live forever. It's certain. It's finished. Salvation secured. Kept in heaven for you an inheritance. By God's power. The power of Almighty God. And if you haven't been saved Call on his name today. Confess your sins to him. Truly ask for mercy. Call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Do it today and you too will live forever. So if this is the reality of our amazing salvation in Jesus Christ, born again to a living hope, through the resurrection, to an inheritance that is secure, that we're being guarded through faith by the power of the God behind all of creation itself. He speaks and so it is. He will guard a true believer and bring them home. It's certain. It will happen. It's finished. Even in suffering and trials, that we would rejoice, that we would have true joy that's inexpressible, daily, truly born again and saved, that we'll obtain the heavenly outcome of our faith. The good news has been announced to us, my friends. Now we are called to be holy, to bear fruit in obedience to Christ. If you look at verse 2 and 14, you'll see Peter speak with, about this. That we would prepare our minds for action, being sober-minded at verse 13, setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ at the last time. And at verse 14 and 15, as obedient children, we would not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance, but he who called us is holy. And so we would also strive to be holy and be holy in all our conduct. This is the reality of salvation in Jesus Christ that bears fruit. My friends, we're living a new life in Jesus Christ. The world cannot give us this life. It's only a gift from Almighty God. And it's a reason to rejoice. Let it be true. Let us celebrate Easter every single day of our lives because Jesus is alive. 
live in the joy of the resurrection. And on that day, we'll be together with with Christ, together with him in the heavenly places, in the heavenly promised land, an inheritance that is imperishable. We'd be raised to eternal life in the company of all of the saints that Jesus paid for on the cross. Let it be so. Let us live in this joy. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you this day and we celebrate again on your day, the Lord's day, the resurrection. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you've lived the perfect life in our place, satisfying all of the law's requirements and that through faith, we have your righteous record granted to us as a gift that we're now clothed in your righteousness, Lord. We thank you for these things. We thank you that you paid the debt on the cross, that God's wrath has been satisfied, that it's finished. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to use us as vessels, that we would be able to preach this good news to everyone we meet, that we would see the purpose of our lives every single moment under the providence of God, as a purpose, as part of your plan. And every moment, there's a time that we can share this good news that saves souls. Thank you for the reality of our living hope and the full assurance that we have in you, Jesus. That we are being kept by God's power and we are eternally secure if we're saved in Jesus Christ. It's finished. Help us to live in this resurrection joy daily joy that's inexpressible. We lift this time up to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.